Over 11 years, the US spent nearly $21.7 billion training and equipping the Iraqi army, their police force, and their counter-terror forces. Then, in the space of just a few days in the summer of 2014, it all collapsed. As thousands of ISIS fighters poured over the border from Syria, as many as 90,000 soldiers and police deserted their posts. The terror group seized major cities in a matter of hours, and within days, they were charging towards the capital of Baghdad and the semi-autonomous Kurdish capital of Erbil. The borders between Iraq and Syria that had stood for a hundred years disappeared almost overnight. Across Europe and the US, militaries and governments scrambled to send help before Iraq, much like war-torn Syria next door, fell to the extremists in its entirety and released a bloodbath of ethnic and sectarian cleansing. With the Iraqi military in shambles, the government called for volunteers to defend the homeland. In the holy city of Najaf, Grand Ayatollah Ali al-Sistani, one of the most respected Shiite voices, urged all able-bodied Iraqis to enlist. And soon, neighbourhoods bristled with newly formed militias, manning checkpoints and holding rallies to sign up new recruits. These volunteers, many of them young Shiites, joined the hastily reassembled Iraqi military on the front lines against the Sunni-majority ISIS, and they helped liberate the country in a gruelling three-year campaign. But nearly seven years after the call went out, Iraq's militias are still there, and they're more powerful than ever. Welcomed into the security establishment to stop the country falling to ISIS, those largely Shiite forces now run a near-parallel state. They have their own logistics and command infrastructure, their own MPs in parliament, and their own community outreach and jobs programmes. But some of these groups stand accused of kidnapping, torture, of assassinating dozens of prominent Iraqi activists and protesters since they took to the streets in late 2019, demanding a new Iraq, one without corruption, without nepotism, and one where the state can provide education, jobs, power and water. But there seems very little that the government can do. The country today faces a new battle. For an Iraq ruled by the militias, or one ruled by an elected government where the rule of law is paramount. This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm James Haynes Young. And today, we're looking at the man in the middle of these two Iraqs, Prime Minister Mustafa al-Kadami. And we're asking, how can he rein in the militias? Talking about the militias in Iraq is complicated. There's a lot of them, and they all want different things. There were Christians, Yazidis and other minority militias that formed in the face of an attempted ISIS genocide. There were Sunni volunteers and Shiite majority groups, some with ties to Iran, others without. Some formed in 2014 as local defence forces, and others have existed in some form for decades. There are all manner of groups within this broad umbrella of the Hashd al-Shabi, or, in English, Popular Mobilisation Forces. Sajid Jihad is a fellow at the Century Foundation. He tells us about this wide spectrum of groups now operating in Iraq. 
these groups have varying agenda, but what they have in common is they've allied themselves with with Iran because um, one ideological reasons they believe they are the resistance axis. They're there to push back against America and um, pro-American uh, countries and groups, um, and they believe that they are fighting for the defense of sort of their religious identity, and also that uh, Iran is being sort of oppressed by all these other countries who try to bring it down, and, and therefore Iraq should defend Iran uh, because it's its neighbor and um, they share so many things with Iran. But what started out as a volunteer force to fight against ISIS has, in recent years, morphed entirely. Powerful militias now have large blocks in parliament. Their members get good jobs in ministries that have come under their control. And there are lucrative government contracts that come to businesses with ties to these armed groups. At the same time, some of the armed factions have been kidnapping and assassinating, torturing, intimidating and carrying out acts of terrorism. And quite frankly, people have had enough. As a concern for the average Iraqi when they see their government on one side, um, despite you know all the flaws with governments, despite the fact that there's a lot of mismanagement and corruption and inefficiency, the fact that the government is just a coalition of rivals who you know have agreed to form a government, a very weak government. And yet on the other side is an element of the security forces which you know gave blood, which lost so many members to defend Iraq, are seemingly sort of in conflict with each other. It's not just the government and the militias that are in conflict. Some groups have been waging a low-level insurgency against US and international troops stationed in Iraq to train the military and help in the fight against ISIS. There are regular rocket attacks against US forces. There are also attacks on demonstrators. In late 2019, tens of thousands of young people took to the streets to protest against years of corruption nepotism, of crumbling state services, the lack of jobs, the power cuts, the out-of-touch politicians, the years of neglect and the slow progress in rebuilding after the war against ISIS. In the face of these mass rallies across Baghdad and the South, security forces and the militias hit back. According to official tallies, as many as 600 protesters were killed, some shot with live ammunition, some shot in the head with military-grade tear gas canisters. We spoke to one of the activists who's been out on the streets calling for change. And he tells us, despite the deaths, the protests continue. Everyone here is not scared. You know, the maximum thing that they can do, they do it. They did it. They killed Ihab, who, who was the leader of the protesters. But that did not get the scare to our heart. We still protesters protesting so what what they do it uh, another they cannot do something maximum that than that and they the all the teenagers and youth and civil activists and the the popular they didn't stop the protesting so i think not they scared the violence brought down the government of adil abdul mehdi and in his place was the candidate of the people mustafa al-kadami he promised an end to the violence, justice for the killings, a new, fairer electoral law, and a swift election to give the people on the streets a voice in the future of their country. Since coming to office, he has managed to get elections scheduled for October. And he's drafting a law that should, in theory, 
make it easier for civil society groups and for independents to take seats at the expense of the larger national parties with deeper pockets. The number of deaths at the protests has dropped significantly, but there remains little justice. Sarkwat Shams is an Iraqi MP with the Hope Alliance. But the Kadhimis government was one of the promises is to keep them in check and stop them from attacking the uh, U.S. bases and coalition bases and bring them under the umbrella of the government. That has failed. And then the second step he took was to uh, hold uh, some of their commanders accountable, arrest them and uh, trial, trial them if possible. But that also has failed. It's already, we are in a mood of the civil war, but it is not, it has not triggered at least because the, the, the forces, the government forces and the, the forces uh, outside of the government control are really not uh, respecting each other. They are, uh, you know, they are confronting each other on like a, it's like a cold war. We asked the activist that we spoke to about his view of the militias and specifically how he thinks that the government can bring them under control. There is a militia who, uh, who, uh, get the orders from the government and they are uh, they are uh, they are yes they are a militia they are uh, they are they have uh, 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 some shape and some forces but they are not in out of order of the government but what are concerned from it the militia who ordered by iran this is the militia who is uh, actually, all the people in Iraq uh, force them and uh, blame them and talk them, uh, on them and uh, attack them. You know, now in, in Iraq, people also attack those militias, go to the uh, Iranian embassy and burn the, the, the Iranian embassy, uh, go to the, to the uh, center of the political parties who, uh, who are uh, covered those militias from Iran and burn, and something like that. So we are worried not about militias who ordered by the government, but we are uh, uh, worried about the militias who ordered by Iran. Iraq and Iran fought a devastating war in the 1980s that left as many as a million dead. But in the wake of the US invasion to topple Saddam Hussein, there was a Shiite ascendancy in Iraq without the oppression of the former Sunni dictator. And Iran, in turn, seized on the post-invasion shake-up of Iraq and sought to build influence. Pro-Iranian Shiite commanders and allies returned to Iraq to join the government, the military, to set up parties. But fast forward to today, what can be done against these Iran-backed militias? We asked the activist. We see the protesters that... Uh, we must uh, push on the, these militias to uh, reach to the, uh, to the election. An election, if we uh, uh, can uh, uh, push them from the parliament, uh, the political cover will, uh, will, will, uh, will vanish from the militias. Sajad Jihad from the Century Foundation thinks that the violence meted out by the popular mobilization forces or PMFs for short, over the last year and a half have taken their toll on the people, and that this will be reflected at the upcoming elections. 
these groups that were in the PMF that have been accused of suppressing um, protests, they haven't done a, an amazing job of defending themselves. Their propaganda is pushed at um, characterizing protesters as you know, sort of foreign agents working with Americans and the American embassy and um, acting to sort of as anarchists to destabilize the country and have dismissed some of the legitimate reasons why people came out to protest. And then, you know, as the protests grew more and there was more violence, people continued to come out in support of that and have acted sort of in a very defensive manner and trying to um, shrug off any criticism without uh, accepting that they had a role in supporting the violence in these protests. And I think the PMF has lost a bit of its reputation, a significant part of its reputation, because of what happened from October 2019 onwards. Uh, it was no longer you know, fighting against ISIS. It was helping the government to repress protests. So Mustafa Al-Kadami has vowed accountability and to stop the lawless militias. But what can he actually do? The activist says that the government knows taking the militias head-on is dangerous. And so instead, they're targeting their source of financing. The government is not afraid from the militias, but the government do not want the blood in uh, in all the streets in Iraq. Uh, they know if, if they uh, push the... the uh, uh, the army and the uh, security forces uh, to the militias, there will be a fight in the one clan, in one street, in the, in the same uh, house. Uh, so they are, I think, I think they are make a good uh, steps to, uh, to uh, dry the, uh, the sources of the, of the economy uh, of the militias. Michael Knights is a fellow at the Washington Institute who specialises in Iraq. He's also met and spoken to Mustafa Al-Kadami on numerous occasions and knows him well. He agrees with the activist's assessment. Mustafa Al-Kadami definitely believes in a slow-burn approach to pushing back on militia influence, corruption, and, and bringing back Iraq as a state. For young people, that's very infuriating, especially when they're getting killed on a daily basis. Uh, by these militias. Although fewer protesters are being gunned down at protests, more are being gunned down outside their homes, on the streets of Iraq, and while driving. Targeted assassinations of activists are on the rise. So much so that in May, protesters took to the streets with the slogan, Who Killed Me? to demand that the hooded gunman be uncovered and arrested. And the Prime Minister is still accused of not taking enough action. So why isn't Mustafa Al-Kadami being more aggressive in his tactics? Here's MP Sarkwat Shams again. When he says the PMU, he's using an acronym for what we've been calling the Popular Mobilisation Forces. Today, as we speak, the, one of the uh, commanders of uh, PMU, who was Qasem Muslah, who was accused of killing uh, or activists, and then based on that accusation, he was uh, arrested and investigated. But he just released uh, today without any trial or fair trial. Uh, that proves the, the two things. The government is weak and the government is under huge pressure. So security officers have arrested commanders and fighters from the PMFs. They have then handed them to the judiciary and they've ultimately been released. 
Michael Knights says that the Prime Minister feels the weight of responsibility for the lives of the activists and the protesters, and that he's working carefully to try and minimise the loss of life while still making some gains. Part of that, says Michael, is fundamentally part of the Prime Minister's character. So who is Mustafa Al-Kadami? Mustafa Al-Kadami does not believe in shortcuts. He wants to do the slow burn uh, approach to rolling back militia control inside Iraq, one militia at a time. Um, in terms of bloodshed, Mustafa Al-Kadami is not a soldier. He's not a brutal person or a killer. And so that's why it's some ways so strange that he was head of Iraqi National Intelligence Service. He's a journalist. He's a civil society person. And it was, in my view, very encouraging that Iraq put its best intelligence agency under the control of a person like that, somebody who does value civil liberties, who does care about protesters. And the protesters saw the benefit of that, uh, you know, in 2019. Many are only alive because of that. but, you know, does that make Mustafa Academy the best person to crack down on militias who will risk everything to maintain their control of Iraq, who will kill as many people as they need to, men, women and children? Well, you know, Mustafa Academy uh, is not this brutal soldier who will just dive in and rip off the Band-Aid, you know, risk hundreds or thousands of deaths today to save 50,000 deaths over the next five years. What can one man do? He might be the prime minister, but he has no militia of his own. He has no block in parliament to force through his plans. Mustafa Academy has some good friends and advisors around him, but ultimately he is alone, completely alone at the top. No other major political figures are really able to offer him impartial or helpful advice, honestly. Most of them want his job or they have candidates in mind uh, to replace him. So, you know, Iraqi politics is a viper's nest. Even the nationalists do not help each other. They actively undermine each other. So it's extremely lonely at the top of Iraqi politics. As a result, Mustafa Academy does tend to rely on his own judgment a lot. And he has some fundamental characteristics that guide how he acts, particularly in moments of crisis. One of them is that he's not a bloodthirsty person. He doesn't seek conflict or war. And he knows that even though he one day might be personally affected, the militias may come after him in an illegal way or through a legal mechanism. He knows that the cost will be paid largely by the Tishrinis, by the young people. Now, like any older person, Mustafa Academy is hesitant and conservative about putting other people at risk. The young Tishrinis go out in the streets and they throw firebombs at militias and they get shot in the head with tear gas canisters and they keep coming because they're young and they're determined and that's what young people are like. But when you're the Prime Minister of Iraq, an older man, you feel responsible 
for all these people. And you know, in the first 24 hours of a major confrontation with the militia, hundreds will die and scores of Tashrini activist leaders will be disappeared from their homes and killed. And that's his responsibility if it happens. So Mustafa Academy is always trying to limit the amount of harm done to the Tishrinis, to the young people, to the innocent people. And one day history will judge him as to whether he did enough, whether he should have taken more risks at this point so that there was less harm to Iraqi people later, or whether he made the right calls at this point because he would have simply sparked a civil war where the principal victims would have been all these same young people who are telling him, do more, do more, do more quickly. Uh, so he's an old head and young people can't understand that, but he's trying to protect them at the same time as doing as much good as he can do for Iraq. And, you know, I'm only saying this as a, as a friend and somebody who's spoken with him many times. And so the government is in a bind. The Prime Minister sits atop a government over which he has only limited control. He has few allies or real friends to support him and faces seemingly insurmountable challenges. He's trying to reconcile the demands of the thousands of young people who want to see the militias brought to heel and the corruption stamped out fast. But at the same time, he's facing a group of very dangerous people determined to secure their position and who have no intention of going down without a fight. So what's the PM's plan? Academy believes that having the right person in the Prime Minister's office, whether it's him or somebody else, is absolutely critical. And he's right. He believes that having a coalition of more moderate blocs at the centre of Iraqi politics is one important factor in bringing the future, you know, making the future better. Everybody that we spoke to saw the main way of confronting the militias that was not a head-on assault as being through the ballot box, trying to encourage those young people on the streets to engage in the system and help to try and reform it. They actually came out in the streets in October 2019 when the Iraqi state was nearly gone and they were the first positive sign for such a long time that Iraqis would stand up for their state. However, uh, in my view, the protest movement is struggling to find a way to actually affect the future. It takes a while to build political parties and young people are not necessarily, they don't necessarily have the resources or the experience to do that straight away. Plus they reject the whole system. So why do they want to go become MPs? So I think in some ways the protesters, they don't have an idea for how to change the system from within. And I think personally that they put in too much blame on the prime minister when the prime minister is only one part of the overall system. To make Iraq work, the prime minister's got to work, the parliament's got to work, the security forces have got to work, and the judiciary has got to work. And ultimately, the economy's got to work as well. But when it comes to institutions, the prime minister can't do it on, the, on his own. 
But won't the parties with ties to Iran that back the militias just use their money, their power and their influence to win the seats again? Well, sentiment has changed towards the militias. Like the militias after 2017, they uh, gained a lot of popularities because of their uh, participation in the, the fight against ISIS. And uh, some of these commanders and individuals, they sacrificed their, their life for uh, Iraq, basically. The people's view has shifted since the 2018, after the elections. Many of these uh, commanders entered elections and became MPs. And became some of them became you know, proved to be not really qualified for those uh, political positions. Uh, they were not able to uh, transform their success in the uh, field to political success, at least for the people. In the last election, they were seen as a hero. They were really very popular. Uh, now, publicly, they are not seen like that. They they lost lots of support publicly they had before. So if there was a, a, a free and fair election, I think most of the current ruling parties, not only PMU, they, they lose. Thanks this week to Sakwat Shams, Sajid Jihad, the activist, and to Michael Knights. We were produced this week by Aisha Khan, Arthur Edison, Mina Aldrubi, and Sinan Mahmood. If you want to get all the latest episodes as soon as they're released, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app.